The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Last Sunday, I got up, it was like a typical Sunday, I got some coffee in my system, I made some final touches on the message, and I had already printed out all of my notes. I was just about to change clothes and walk out the door. It was 8 a.m., and Rebecca comes and finds me, and she says something literally like this. Hey, not to throw a wrinkle into our plans, but I think I'm going into labor. It's almost exactly how she did it. Now, at that point, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm pretty sure my water broke. (laughs) I didn't know that was possible, but I remember she goes and talks on the phone to the doctor, and I remember just running around the house for five minutes. I have no idea what I was doing. I holding my, our daughter, Scarlett. She's uh, about one and a half, and she's just staring around. I'm just running around, and uh, I call Pastor Matt, and I um, say, hey, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it this morning. And so we put in place our contingency plan, and we start getting the house ready. I'm fixing the crib, and I'm, uh, we're packing bags, and we're putting things in the car. And um, within a, a couple hours, um, still about mid-morning, Rebecca says, hey, I think it's about time to go to the hospital. These contractions are getting stronger, closer together. So we load up into the car, and pretty much as soon as we get into the car, I can tell that these contractions are coming on really strong. She's like, she gets real quiet. She's gripping the handle, and she's just breathing through it. And I see that, and I decide it's time to go really fast to the hospital. (laughs) I made it from West Pembroke Pines to uh, Memorial West in about 13 seconds, which is a miracle, um, especially if you know the car that I drive. I didn't even know it could go that fast. (laughs) Over 47 miles an hour was a miracle in and of itself. So we get to the hospital, and uh, the next, it was really, but next two hours were just a blur. I couldn't tell you if it was five minutes or five hours. It was just one very intense moment, and um, I have a whole new respect for my wife, Rebecca. She's, uh, she's I'm a little afraid of her now, actually. And uh, before I knew it, they were placing this little baby boy into our arms, and then the doctor said, here. And I said, okay, and I walked over, and she was holding the umbilical cord and some scissors. You'll be proud to know I successfully clipped the cord. I cut it. I think what actually happened is I grabbed those scissors, passed out, and it cut on the way down. But I cut it, nonetheless, okay? So these last, this last week, we've just been, you know... Getting, trying to get sleep where we can and watching just the, the dynamic between our daughter and the son and just this, the whole concept of 
parental love has just been so vivid in our minds. It's, there's just something that is so unbelievably instinctual and primal about the feelings that you feel immediately for uh, your children. And just feeling those strong, that strong love has been so much on my mind. And it's something so natural, something so instinctual that every one of us experience that from, at least from some direction in our life. It's not just something that parents feel for kids, but it's something that we interact with having parents. Because how we interact with our parents, our relationship with our parents, if they're healthy or they're broken or they're strained, that is something that's very strongly shapes our lives. So that whole dynamic, no matter where you feel that more dominantly in your season of life right now, whether you feel more dominantly thinking about your relationship with your parents or you think about your relationship with your kids or even your grandkids, those, that love, that bond that goes through those generations, that parental love that we deal with from all different sides is such a strong force in our lives. And it's no accident that God, the one who invented that whole dynamic, refers to himself as our father. He says that he looks at us like his children. It's a metaphor, a common metaphor that he uses. Now, this idea of his parental love for us is not a concept we expect to find in the story of the flood. Story of Noah and the ark and the flood That seems like it's a story about God's judgment, a story about God's wrath. I mean, he's destroying pretty much the entire earth minus some animals and and this family that's on this giant boat called an ark. You don't expect to find there to be a description of God's love in that story. It seems like, man, that's kind of the opposite. You know, it's like when we talk about the God of the Old Testament that somehow seems like more mean than the God of the New Testament, you bring out stories like the flood, man. He just, he has judgment. He's kind of just destroying things. But what we're going to find as we go through this series, especially when we go through what we look at it this morning, is when we see the punchline of the entire story, It's actually God's unbelievable, unconditional love. Here's what we're going to do with this story through this series. We're going to take the story of the flood. And typically what we do is we kind of dissect a a passage of Scripture and we kind of go through it very slowly each week. But we're going to handle the story of the flood and knowing the ark a little bit different in this series. We're going to take it as one story and it's like a gem that we're going to hold up to the light intact and we're going to look at it from various angles. So this morning, what we're going to do is do an overview of the story. We're going to look at the very beginning. We're going to look at the very end. We're going to see this dynamic of God's love that he has for us. So if you would open with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 11. If you have your Bible, a Bible app, it's also going to be up here on the screens. It's in your bulletin. Uh, Genesis 6, starting in verse 11. Now I'm going to read through this larger chunk of scripture, and just so we get an idea for this story, Genesis 6, we're going to start in verse 11, it says this, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, 
I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You shall your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing in all, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the bir- birds according to their kind and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is a really unbelievable story in every sense of the word. I mean, it is, it's really, it literally hard to believe. God pretty much speaks to Noah and says, I'm going to destroy this whole earth. I'm going to destroy all of the living inhabitants in the earth, except I'm going to take you and your family, your wife, your sons, their wives, I'm going to take them into this boat. You're going to have two of every animal come into this boat, and you will, when the floods come up, it's going to cover the surface of the entire earth, and you're going to be on this ship called an ark. You're going to be on this ship, and it's going to protect you, and I'm going to start over with all creation through you and the animals that are on this ark. Now, let's just be honest for a second, as modern thinking human beings, this is, an, this is an incredible story. It's hard to believe. I mean, you're telling me that a man and his three sons and their spouses, first of all, let's just start with this feature. They're building a ship, just the four of them. How big is the ship? It tells all these cubits. Well, basically give you an idea, it's 450 feet long. That's how big this boat is. It's got multi-levels inside of it. You're telling me that these, uh, that would have to be an incredible engineer and architect in primitive time to be able to build this ship. You're saying that Noah happened to be able to do it with his three sons. That's incredible. And then you're telling me that all of these animals came on to this ark. You're telling me that two of every animal. I mean, first of all, how did they find the, all the animals? How did, they, how did they not get attacked by the animals? How did they fit all of the animals onto this boat? And then God says, and make sure you have enough food for everyone. How do they possibly fit all of those animals, all of the food on the ark? Not to mention just the side fact that there is a flood, a massive massive catastrophe that will cover the globe, wouldn't you think that there's going to be some kind of evidence geologically, some kind of evidence on this planet that a flood covered the entire, the entire planet? See, this is one of the questions when we hold the story up to the light, if we look at it in one direction, one is just purely a historic question. This 
series, this whole study through this story of the flood, it brings out a lot of things that we doubt. And one of them is, if we're a Christian, we're saying, okay, I believe the Bible, I stand on the Bible, I believe it's infallible, I believe it's inerrant, I believe it's true. We've got to wrestle with some of these stories. Maybe you've had someone even push you and say, dude, I just can't believe the Bible. I mean, it's got people being swallowed by whales. It's got, you know, all kinds of crazy miracles. I mean, not to mention the flood. I mean, you really believe the flood? And this is being presented to us historically as believers who believe in the Bible and stand in the Bible. We've got to wrestle, okay, what do we believe about this story historically? That's one of the angles in this series we're going to talk about. But there's another question that immediately comes up. I mean, it's that God destroys the planet. That's a philosophical problem. I thought God was a good, loving, gracious, forgiving God. And he's destroying the planet? How does a good, loving God also do something like the flood? It's a philosophical problem. Well, look at what it says here. It actually says in the beginning, there's a word that it repeats over and over. It says, the earth was corrupt. Did you see that it said that word corrupt over and over? Did you catch that? It says the earth was corrupt. Now maybe when you think of the word corrupt, you think of someone who's maybe crooked. You think of like a corrupt politician. Maybe you think of an, uh, I don't know, an NFL franchise in particular who (laughs) tampers with equipment. I'm just throwing out hypothetical (laughs) possibilities. When you think of corrupt, we tend to think of someone who's maybe lying a little bit, cheating. Maybe they're okay, but when it comes down to it, if they are given an opportunity, they'll cheat or they'll lie. That's not what the ancient Hebrew means here in this text. When it's saying corrupt, it's not meaning metaphoric. It's meaning literally. It's it's meaning basically like it's disintegrating. More literally, it'd be you could understand it like this. It's saying the earth, it's tearing itself apart. Killing itself. Do you notice it said a couple times, it's filled with violence. I mean, filled with violence. To appreciate how strong the Bible is saying this, think about it like this. The Bible is not squeamish. It's not squeamish when it talks about the reality of of humanity. There's some parts of the Bible that are definitely rated R. It just shows humanity. It shows us very honestly who it is. I mean, what it's saying here, God's not standing back like, man, they're they're saying some four-letter words down there. I I can't handle this. I'm offended. That's not what's happening here. If the scripture is saying it was corrupt, it is tearing itself apart, it is killing itself, it is filled with violence, what's probably happening at that time is probably something that we cannot even imagine. It is humanity that's so bad that God is essentially saying, As an act of mercy, I'm going to start over. You're tearing yourself apart. As an act of mercy, I'm going to step in and put it out of its misery and I'm going to start over with humanity. Was the flood an act of judgment? Yes, but what we know of the character of God and what we see with the language using here, most likely what's happening here is God saying, they're destroying themselves, I need to start over. And as an act of mercy and of judgment, simultaneously, he sends the flood. Now what happens next here? Well, I want to jump to the end. Did you notice that he said, but Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Did you notice he said that? I want to jump to that covenant, but here's what's going to happen in in between. You may know the story. They get into the ark. The animals get into the ark, this giant ship, 
and the rains come down. It says water just floods the entire earth. It goes over the tallest mountains. You've got for months, you've got all the animals, Noah and his family are inside this ark. And then the water starts going down and the ark comes to rest on dry land and they come out of the ark and then God makes this covenant with them. I want you to jump ahead to chapter 9. Jump over with me to chapter 9. It says this in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Now look at this first part of verse 13. I want you to read the underlined part out loud with me. Read it with me. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. They come out of the ark. God says, I will never again destroy the earth with a flood like I did. Never again. And he says, I'm making a covenant with you and I'm going to give you a sign of this covenant. Now in antiquity, the ancient times, when they would do a vow like this, oftentimes there'd be a ritual or some kind of sign or symbol that they would do to seal this covenant. And it's not unlike a wedding today in modern times. There's a vow. There's very few things we do like this. There is a vow that we make to our spouse. We say, till death do us part, I am committed to you. I'm committed to this person. And then during the wedding ceremony, we give a symbol, a sign of that covenant. We give a ring. A ring, it's a powerful symbol in in a couple different ways. It's a great symbol. It's circular, which is a symbol of eternity. There's no beginning or end. It's a precious metal because we're giving all that we have to this person. The most precious gift we could give, we're giving to that person. It's something we wear all the time. You wear this wedding ring on your your finger all the time because that covenant is always binding. It's a sign. Now God is making a covenant with Noah and you notice the generations after him, that would be us. He's making a, a covenant and he says, here's the sign. Now, God could have picked any sign. We've heard the story so much, we know what the sign is. It's a rainbow. It's in, it's in the clouds. We, okay, we got it. We've heard it so many times, we know it. But he could have picked any sign. I mean, think about it. He is the most creative being in history. He, think of the most creative person you know. God made that person. He's the, the most ingenious. He's the best author. He can write the best, writes the best stories. He's the best artist. He's the most poetic. He comes up with the best metaphors. He invented all of that. He could pick any sign. This is what he picked. He could have said, okay, anytime you see an eclipse, that's the sign that I'm never going to destroy the earth again by a flood. He could have said, man, when you see shooting stars, he could have done something dramatic, like I'm going to send shooting stars in either direction. And then, you know, I mean, he could have done anything. He could have said, when you see a glowing herd of unicorns gallop across the sky, that's my sign. He could have done anything. 
He said, this is my sign. So that would be a cue to us. All right, God is leaving the sign, not just for Noah and his kids, but for us. So let's press into it a little bit. What does he mean by this sign? Let's think about the symbol of the bow that is in the cloud. Um, Here's a picture of a rainbow. I want you to think about this for a second. First of all, if you're driving down the road, okay, with someone, and someone sees a rainbow and says, oh, wow, look at that really cool rainbow. Rainbows are universally, pretty much universally accepted as a beautiful part of nature. There's pretty much no one that if their friend says, look at that rainbow, says, oh my gosh, that's grotesque. I can't even look at that thing. Man, I hate those things. Get it out of here. And pretty much no one says that. It's universally accepted. It's a beautiful, glorious part of creation. So he picks something beautiful, something dazzling, something that pretty much every human will say that's beautiful. But the second thing, let's talk about what he's actually talking about here in this text. He says, I'm putting my bow in the clouds. What is he talking, what kind of bow? I mean, he's talking like the kind of bow you put on top of a present. What does he mean here? The word for bow is literally like the weapon, like a bow and arrow. See, I'm putting my bow in the clouds. That's the Hebrew word there. It is a weapon. Now, if you're like me, I don't really have an appreciation for ancient archers or archery. I don't really have um, much of an appreciation for that. But this is one of, the bow is one of the most influential weapons in ancient history. If you were to line up the most influential weapons throughout all of history, you would have things like the tank. You'd have like the cannon, Okay, think of how many centuries the cannon was a pivotal part of warfare. You'd have like the AK-47, extremely influential weapon, and you would have the bow. The bow is, for millennia, the most feared weapon. I kind of always thought you'd give like the linebackers, like the big guys, you'd give them a sword and send them into battle, and kind of the squirrely guys, they just get like the bow and arrow, go stand on a hill, just don't get hurt, you know, and they would shoot the, shoot the arrows at the enemy. That's not the way it was. Whole wars were changed because of archers coming in close combat on horseback. The English longbow, for example, the English longbow changed entire wars. They would train up a they train up boys from the age of seven or eight. They would have to start training to become a longbow archer at the age of seven or eight years old because they have to build the muscle mass to be able to shoot that. This is an incredibly feared weapon. It's essentially, imagine he's saying to the original audience, he's saying, I have put my AK-47 in the clouds. That's what he's saying. I've put my AK-47 in the clouds. So, okay, it's this dazzling, beautiful image, but it's a weapon that's up in the clouds. But let's look a little bit more. Let's, okay, this is a brilliant symbol from God, so let's look at this a little bit more. I want you to see this picture of an actual bow. This is a replica of the most ancient bow that they've found, archaeologists have found. This is a replica of a bow that's 10,000 years old. This is what it looks like, okay? Kind of see, just kind of resting there. Okay, now go back to the picture of the rainbow. I want to ask you a question. Does that bow look like it's resting or does it look like it's taut? 
It looks like it's being pulled back. It's like it's ready to fly. Because you could interpret him saying, okay, I've hung up my, my battle gear. I've placed it up. I'm not going to attack humanity anymore. I've hung it up on, on its butt. It's kind of rested it in the corner. No longer will I attack humanity. But that's not what that symbol is. When we say, okay, God put this beautiful symbol together, what we see is he's pulling it back. It's about ready to fly. Now here's the most important question. What direction is it pointing? Is the the bow pointing down towards earth like this? We don't question it because we've seen them. But think about it. I mean, he could have arranged nature to make it shaped any way he wanted. How is it shaped? It's not shaped down. It's shaped up. Pulled back, ready to fire. One last thing, what, what do we, when does a, a, a bow appear? A bow appears at the end of a storm usually. I want you to imagine that first couple generations after the flood, the first raindrop they felt. What must that have felt like? Flashbacks? Trauma? Just terror, fear, just surging through them, thinking, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? But I wonder if they thought this. Oh, is it happening again? And is there an ark built somewhere that I'm not allowed on? I wonder if they, all of a sudden, with each drop on their head, they're like, oh, God must have seen when I did this. And that's why it's coming again. It's going to happen. What if it is? I know he said he wouldn't come again, but what if it happens again? What if the flood happens? And this time, I don't know of any ark. I might miss it. It's because I did this. He knows that I did this, and I I sinned, and I messed up, and I I keep making that same mistake. I wonder if with every drop that came down, they felt the guilt and the shame of judgment. But at the end of the storm, they see a bow that's pointing towards God. What's this picture? Do you realize it's a sign to every single human? It's a sign to you and me every time we see a rainbow. Do you know what it's a picture of? It's a picture of the core message of the entire Bible, the core message of God to humanity. It's the, the good news. It's the gospel. It's the whole reason we come together each week. It's this one single message. Do you realize we don't come together each week because, you know what, we need more people following the Christian religion. We don't come together each week saying, okay, we need more people to be obedient to God. We don't come together every week and say, we, we need more people to come to church. We want to get more churchgoers. That's not why we come together. We come together just to celebrate this one simple message that though we deserve judgment, God is going to take the penalty himself. Though the drops of judgment we deserve, he will take the arrow. The arrow is taught pulled, ready to fly up, and he will take it himself. God sent Jesus, God in the flesh, he sent Jesus to this earth. God came to this earth, and he said, I am going to take the penalty. I am going to take all of the punishment, all of the torture on myself for the sins that humanity has done. I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to take the punishment on myself. Jesus was crucified on the cross. He took all of the wrath, all of the punishment, all the torture on himself. And he died on the cross. But on the third day, he rose again. And he left a sign from the very beginning that every time you're reminded of the judgment that you deserve that should fall upon you, I want you to remember 
that I took the judgment for you. Do you realize what he's saying is he's saying, I love you so much. He's not just saying, I'd take a bullet for you. He's not saying, I'd take the arrow for you. He's saying more than that. He's saying, I would take hell, eternal hell for you. That's the kind of unconditional love he has for you. Going through this process of um, the blessing of having our, our son born, going through this process a second time, the interesting thing has been looking at it through our daughter Scarlett, seeing it through her eyes. And she's 21 months, she's basically a, a year and a half old, so she doesn't understand a lot of what's going on, and so we've been really wondering, okay, how she's going to take this. Now, Scarlett and I have a, an awesome relationship. There are times we laugh together till we almost pass out. We just, we love each other. But Scarlett and her mom are inseparable. She loves her mom. And so we're like, okay, we need to get her ready for seeing Rebecca holding another baby. And so as Rebecca was getting more and more pregnant, we would, we would say, Scarlett, uh, where's the baby? Where's the baby? And Scarlett would point to Rebecca's tummy, and then we'd say, where's Nehemiah? We'd start to teach her his name. Where's Nehemiah? And she'd go, Mia, Mia. And she'd point Rebecca's belly and trying to get her ready. And then um, on Monday, the day after Nehemiah was born, it was the moment to introduce Scarlett to Nehemiah. And so uh, I pick up Scarlett and I, I get her. She's in the lobby with me. Rebecca's up in the room, of course, with Nehemiah. And uh, we go into the elevator and the elevator closes and it's just Scarlett and I. And I'm starting to, the gravity of the moment, I'm trying to grasp the gravity of the moment. So I'm starting to tell Scarlett, you know, you're going to meet, you're, this is your little brother you're going to meet. It's one of the most important relationships that you'll ever have. He, you, he's going to be one of your best friends. You're, you're going to hate him sometimes, but he's also going to be one of your best friends, and, and she's just sucking her thumb, you know, obviously she doesn't know where she is, she's at the mall for all she knows, and um, I'm walking with her down this, there's this long hallway right till we get back to where uh, the rooms are, and we're walking down this long hallway, and I said, Scarlett, you, you remember mama's baby? I said, who's mama's baby? And she takes her thumb out, and she goes, <laughs> she points to herself. And Dada had an emotional breakdown at that point. <laughs> to put her down, get in a fetal position on the floor. And uh, I walk with her, and she loves her little brother. She's adjusting to uh, our, our attention being divided, but she loves her little brother. But one of the f- incredible things about parental love is not just the feeling from the parent. It's the need that we have as children for the love of our parents. There's almost nothing like it. Almost. There's a love that you need to know about far more than that. There's a love that's even more instinctually wired in you, whether you realize it or not. There's a love that you need that's even more primal, that you may not even know you're wrestling with and sorting through it. There's a love that you and I need to know even more than that kind of love. It's a love of the one who invented us, our creator. Can I ask you a question, just an honest question? Humor me with a moment of introspection. If I were to ask you, how do you feel like, what do you believe God feels when he looks at you today? Just humor me. Just look inside for a second. How do you believe God looks at you today? Maybe you say, well, honestly, if I'm honest, he feels distant. Just kind of cold. I don't know that he cares about me that much. 
I'm kind of living my life, doing my thing, and, and he's got his plan, he's just doing his plan, and I'm just trying not to get in the way, I'm just trying to do my life and, and do the best I can. Or maybe you say, you know what, I, I just don't feel like he cares because I've been praying for this one part of my life, and I'm asking him and asking him and asking him and praying and praying and praying and praying, and I've got nothing back. So I'm kind of saying to myself, God, fine, I, I'm just going to do it myself. If you're just not going to answer me, if you're just going to do whatever you want anyway, God, what's the point of me praying? What's the point of me coming and seeking you? Maybe you say, you know, honestly, God just feels distant. He feels cold. Maybe you say, it's not that God feels distant if I'm honest. God, I think God's disappointed in me. He looks at me and says, oh gosh, you've done it again. I'm just disgusted. I can't even look at this. I'm so disappointed in you. Just try and get your act together and come back and get me when you've pulled yourself together. I just can't take watching this anymore. You say, you know what, I, I, I just keep falling into the same mess ups over and over and I know God's just mad and he's just, he's just disgusted and disappointed in me and maybe you're getting, you know that God wants you to turn from the route that you're in. You know you're messing up and you're seeing that it's affecting and maybe even destroying your life but you can't turn from, from your sin. You, can't, you don't want to turn away from it and maybe the reason you don't want to turn away from it is because what you're turning back to seems like a disappointed, disgusted God just tapping his foot, just shaking his head at you. Do you realize who's waiting for you to return to him? He's the, he's the father that's stretching, looking on the horizon, seeing if you're coming back. He's the one who gets down on a knee as you come running back and scoops you up into his arms. He's the unconditionally loving father. Maybe say, you know, for me, it's, it's, um, it's not that. I just think God's, God's just my enemy. Here's the reason why, you know, I'm, I'm here at church, but I just don't really do the God thing. Because, man, you don't know what's happened in my life, what God allowed. And I cannot believe God allowed that into my life. I'm mad at him. He's my enemy. God and I are not in the, in the right place. He doesn't want me here. I don't even really want to be here. We're, we're at odds. He's my adversary. Look, I, I'd say I, I don't know why the things have happened in your life that they have. No one can answer those questions, but there is one question that we can't answer. All we know is for certain he is a loving father that wants to walk you through this. He wants to take you by the hand. He will always come when you call. When you're laying alone at night, staring at the ceiling, he's the one that will come and answer when you call to him. See, he has an unbelievable, unconditional love. But there's one more that potential place that one of us might be in that I'm maybe the most concerned. It's people who say, you know what, I'm kind of following God, but it's just not that urgent in my life. I got my life. I sprinkle in some religion in my life from here and there, but... It's just not that important. I don't know how much I need God, if I'm honest. But you know what Jesus said? He said, you can't follow two masters. In other words, he's saying, it's all or nothing. Follow Jesus or don't. And sometimes what keeps us from saying, I'm all in Jesus, here's my life, is we don't believe who's running our life loves us that much. You realize all of those places we could be in is doubting that we are loved by God. I want to close with this last verse this morning. It's found in Isaiah 49. Can you just hear these words? Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. You realize what God says to you this morning? 
He's saying, yeah, there's, there's almost nothing like a, a mother's love for her child. Almost nothing. But that pales in comparison to my love for you. I will never forget you. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. My love will never quit on you. You can never run so far that I won't accept you back. The the circumstances can never be so dark that I won't come racing in to walk with you through them. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you and me from the love of God. It is the most overwhelming force in the universe. And maybe this morning, You need to stop doubting and run back to your father. And for some of you, maybe it's the first time. Maybe you've been kind of keeping God at at arm's distance all of your life, but maybe this morning you say, you know what, I, I need, I just need to accept his love. I just need to let him love me. And here's what it looks like. You just simply stop and say, okay, God, I realize and I believe that you came to earth in human form, God in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. And you took the arrow. You took the judgment on yourself. You took the hell that I deserve. You took it on yourself, all the wrath of God, and you paid for it on the cross. And you rose again from the dead so that I could be washed clean permanently. You have no anger left for me, just love. And maybe this morning you say, I believe that today. You've got nothing left for me but love. And maybe for the first time today you accept that. If that's you, I just want to lead you in a simple prayer that you can accept God's love for the first time today. You could be saved once and for all this morning. Is that you? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If that's you, I'd ask that you would just pray this simple prayer in your heart. Something between you and God. Make these words your own. Say, God, thank you for loving me so much even though I don't deserve your love. Thank you for taking the wrath that I deserve. For taking the penalty for the judgment and the penalty for my sin. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. And I give you my life. I want to follow you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.